Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Good morning. Uh, It is good to be with you this morning. If you are visiting us for the very first time, or if you just forget names easily, uh, my name is Anthony. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I was introducing myself to someone uh, who's been helping take out some of the carpet in our in our future building yesterday, and he asked if he was ever going to meet one of the pastors. And when I told him, "Oh, well, I'm I'm one of the pastors," he goes, "Oh, like a junior pastor." Which was sweet of him. So uh, yeah, kind of like that. I'm kind of like one of the, the junior pastors. There you go. Um, you know, there's, there's mornings like today where um, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing worship alongside you, and I just go, oh, maybe I just need to get out of the way. Like, this is good. We're in a good spot right now. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm in the way. Here we are. Uh, but I'm in the way, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for things that are going on in the, the life of our church. Uh, yesterday, uh, we had a big work day. We had uh, like 40 or 50 people out uh, getting our new church home ready for us to move in. If you don't know, we're a church on the move. Uh, we're only here at Sandberg for two more Sundays uh, until we are in, into our new home on Easter Sunday. And we're so excited about that. And we had crews of people together uh, yesterday painting and tearing things out and smoothing things over. And I think we have some, some pictures to show up just so you can see. If you missed it, what we're up to, we have some befores of some rooms. There's the room that we're going to be using on Sundays for our middle school ministry that had a lot of stuff in it. Now all that stuff, it got moved to the middle of the room and uh, we've, we've now painted the walls a bit. I'm not showing you finished pro- products because we still have one more of these next Saturday, right? So we still got to get together and, and finish some of these pieces off, but uh, we're making progress. There was painting that happened. Again, lots of stuff moved to a dumpster. I want to show you a picture of the baptism at this church that we're heading to. Uh, as, as I've talked to people who've called that church building home for a while, uh, they're not quite sure when the last baptism was that happened in that baptismal. Um, and, and I'm so excited because on Easter Sunday, we have at least 12 people right now lined up to be baptized in that baptismal that who knows when it was used last, and we get to get that thing soaked, which is so exciting. But we wanted to clean it out. So uh, we had a team of people in there uh, yesterday, led by a friend of mine, Tim Ralph, who cleaned that thing up. We have a guy coming in tomorrow to fix the heating coil because it's heated water, friends. Uh, so those of you who are like, yeah, I kind of, I was thinking about getting baptized, but oh my gosh, like that inflatable pool you guys do in the Pacific Ocean, that's cold. We now have a warmer option for you. So uh, that's uh, on Easter. Not that it's about that, but kind of, right? So uh, that, that heats up and we're, we're excited about those pieces. Um, but again, finished product, not there yet. So we still need your help. Next week, I was leading that team while our not junior pastor, while uh, Pastor Jim and uh, Pastor Kevin were actually leading a team down in Mexico to build a home for a young family down there. There were a few weeks ago where Jim and I looked at each other and we were like, wait, we're moving into a building really soon and also going to Mexico. Like, are we cool doing all these things at once? And we kind of landed on, I like being a church that does things like this. As we move into a new home, we're building new homes for people. Like, I like that. I like the visual of that. I I like what that tells our neighbors, that we are a church that cares about others, not just ourselves. And so that team got together. We prayed over them super early on Friday morning. They then uh, headed out. By the end of the first day together, they'd almost finished the house. 
It was amazing. And so by like a little after lunchtime yesterday, it was done and they got to go get fish tacos at the beach and they were, uh, they were soaked and hung out together and really got to know the neighbors down there. We're partnering with a church planting group uh, down in Tijuana that uh, is trying to plant 50 churches to reach the people uh, in, in their area. And as they go, we're then building homes for those who are in need around those churches. So they go, oh, I like having a church near us. So they take care of us. So that's, that's what the church should be. So that's what we've been up to. Um, another thing that, that's going on that it's just good for me to give you a heads up on, if you call Real Life Home, uh, we are on the move. We're on the move taking over a building and doing things to that building that have never been done before. Uh, and there's some things we need to do in order to make that move happen. If you're visiting us today, you now get to hear a pastor try to talk about money in front of a church. This is fun. Because um, here's the thing. Like, I just, I want to catch you up to speed and, and remind you, we, we gave out pledge cards uh, back on the 10th of March. Uh, we're having them come back in this next week. And knowing that that was happening and I needed to remind you, I sat down with my kids last night and I was like, hey, so mom and I have talked about like what we want to give towards making this, this move happen beyond what we typically give. Um, but I wanted my kids to be involved in that process too. Because if, if they're doing their job right, like they're going to be inviting friends into church and, and I want them to feel like they helped make this move happen. And so we sat around the dinner table and we talked about it and talked about God doesn't love you more or less based on how much you give, but he calls us to sacrifice for things that are worth sacrificing for. And, and so they took their cards off to their own rooms um, and came up with numbers. And they were like, where do we put the number? And it's like, well, it's helpful if it goes in the big box so daddy can do the math because that's just helpful, but we can figure out like how that comes in. And, and I'll just tell you as, as a dad, like when they brought those cards back, like they had really thought it through. They don't have jobs. Like <laughs> um, the, the oldest one's 11. Like we're not, we're not in that season yet where they have income. And so they're looking at, birthday money they have left over, and they're looking at, okay, if I help mom with weeds in the backyard, I get a quarter at a time, and, and together, my three kids, like when we added it all together, they're giving $26.75 towards, towards this, this, this move, which I'm so excited that they feel that invested, uh, and I'd, I'd invite you, as you think through this next week and bringing your cards back, those of you that call Real Life Home, think about to what extent can you be involved in this thing? Um, how much do you believe in this move and, and reaching those new neighbors? It helped talking about this at the first service because I cried. Like that was, um, I kind of got it out of me. So there you go. Um, but I, I, I love those moments where we get to actually step out and go, God, I have faith in you um, that one day you'll replenish my bank account of you know, birthday dollars. And uh, so they're, they're leaning into that. And I hope you lean into us, into that with us as well, uh, starting next week. So those are, those are the things that I wanted to cover. Um, you know, I was also, I was hanging out with them um, I was hanging out with them yesterday, and, you know, we're having dinner together. And they're like, Dad, so the church is in this series right now. Uh, this is Carter articulating it because our middle school kids kind of track along with us. He goes, we're talking about the, the early church. Like, why are we doing that? That was like 2,000 years ago. And he's right. It was. It was. And you might be wondering that too. Why are we going back to talk about what the original church did uh, as we look forward towards the future? And that's because we're a church on the move in a church in transition. And in seasons of transition, you have a chance to dream about what next looks like. And for us at Real Life, we want what's next to look like what the early church could have looked like had they had you know, a building but still did the majority of their ministry in living rooms. We want to live into this idea that, that a building is not a place where we get to have a holy huddle, but instead it gets to be an epicenter for the gospel to go out from. We get to, to have a rallying point for us to be able to, to send out new missionaries into our communities, to, to build more homes and, and do more work. Our new home gets to be a place where revival breaks out from because Easter is coming. And I'm so excited for that day. 
And so today, uh, we're going to continue in our series by studying a passage from the New Testament that's often connected to weddings, but I think can actually mean so much more in our lives. Uh, and so as we get ready to, to listen in to what the Apostle Paul writes about what love is, would you join me in prayer? Now, Father God, I pray that you would meet us in this space, that you would call us into something new. Uh, God, that as we hear your word today, that you would change our lives, that we would leave this place renewed by your spirit, ready to change the world around us in your name. God, we come before you, ready to hear what you have to say. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter 12 going into chapter 13, uh, Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I have nothing. Because love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I was at a gathering of pastors at a local university a few months ago when I heard the origin story of WD-40. Have you, have you heard this before? Uh, there's a guy named Norm Larson, uh, who's considered to be the founder of the formula for, for WD-40. Do you know what the WD stands for? Water displacement. Yeah, I didn't know either. It's cool. Like, uh, so get ready. You're going to learn some trivia. Next time you're trying, playing like Trivial Pursuit, right, at a family gathering, you're going to know something. Water displacement. That's what the WD stands for. Norm was trying to create uh, a solvent or a degreaser to use in aerospace, because that's the industry that he worked in, and he wanted to, to displace water. So here's where the story gets interesting. Creating something that did what he wanted it to do was harder than Norm had imagined. Ten tries into trying to create this formula, it wasn't working. 25 tries after that, he still wasn't getting the results he set out for. Imagine that you've decided to do a thing. You've tried to do it and you failed and you failed and you failed. And at what point do you change your plan? When do you decide it is no longer worth the effort? Once you've said yes to something, what happens when you, it's harder than you thought it was going to be? What if it doesn't make you happy anymore? For Norm Larson, as the story goes, his yes meant on the 38th failure, it wasn't going to stop him. Can you imagine? So WD stands for water displacement. 
it's a kind of a spoiler that like it worked. We have the thing, like you probably have a couple cans in your garage. Like that's, he figured it out. And you might've guessed by now, but the 40 after the WD is it was his 40th try when he finally found a formula that worked. He didn't give up on the 38th try. He didn't give up on the 39th. Squeaky hinges were that important to Norm. (laughs) And I'd like to think that I'm stubborn enough that, that I would have seen something through like Norm, but I'm not sure. Now, I know I'm stubborn enough. Like, you can ask Christine. Like, we're all aware of that. But I don't think that I care that much about water displacement as he did. And... And I heard that story sitting in a room of pastors and university faculty, and it got me thinking, what are the things that I've said yes to that no matter what, I will keep trying? And then it got me thinking, you know, what does it even mean to say yes to something when we can't actually predict how anything will go? I mentioned this a minute ago, but today's passage is popular at weddings. I know because, as you're aware, pastors spend a lot of time at weddings. Uh, There's this moment as a pastor when the couple's Uh, are standing in front of you and they're making promises together and I get a little bit nervous. I look at these two people and they have all these feelings bubbling up and the groom's trying to make sure his knees are bent so he doesn't, you know, like pass out because that's a thing. Bend your knees. You got to do it. It's important. Uh, You know, the moms are sitting in the front row and they're trying not to cry but the makeup's starting to go and they're like, I thought this was waterproof, right? Like there's all these things happening and in that moment, I wonder, do these people really know what they're saying yes to? Because marriage is hard. And if you are not great at promises, like you should start there before you then step into marriage. There are days when you have to love the person who keeps making piles around the house. Yeah, that's me. Uh, uh, you have to, like, there's, there comes a day when you have to decide, I'm going to love the person who, after you've told the kids no more sweets, 100% still lets them have sweets. Like, that is also me. Uh, you have to decide you're still going to love the person who locks themselves out of the house, even though like you're an hour away and you have to drive back and it ruins all of your plans for the day because every time I put my keys down, I forget where I put them. Like that's just the thing. Maybe it's just being married to me is hard, but, but I have this sense that marriage is hard. But you know what I mean? Like we see people say I do to the beautiful moments and those same people then walk away from their I do when things become normal or when those moments and seasons turn ugly. But there's a story that I like telling where I I believed that the yes that was being said was a yes that was going to last. It was a wedding with with big families and a big wedding dress. Like, uh, you know how shoulder pads were a thing in like the 80s and 90s? Like I thought that went away, but you give something enough time, it will come back around, right? And uh, this wedding dress big shoulder pads and a really long train with all the tiny people carrying it and giant veil, like everything in this, everything was big that we were trying to manage in that one. And uh, there's this moment, uh, and it was was after the yes, it was after the I do, where, uh, you know, the person standing here says, and you you may kiss the bride, right? And uh, the groom lifts the veil, right? He's, He's getting ready to kiss her, And as he lifts it, he notices that on her cheek is a giant spider. I know, right? Like, but imagine like you're next to it. Like, and uh, so it's not, it's not crowd side, it's pastor side, right? And so there's this moment where it's like, oh my gosh, is that going to eat my face after it eats her? Like what's happening? Like what's, what's going on here? Uh, And, and in that moment, in that moment, I I knew they were going to be okay. 
Because the groom does this. He, he grabs her face when he goes to kiss her and kisses her and swoops it away. I know. I was like, I would be married to him. Look at that, that's fantastic. Like, well done. Uh, next time I have something to like smash in my house, I'm calling him up. He's going to take care of it. Like, and I don't know when that spider showed up under that veil. Like, I don't know if it was there the whole time. I don't know if it like crawled in after the I do's. And, and I don't think that he knew that's what he was saying yes to in that moment. And yet when he lifted the veil and there was something scarier than he thought was going to be there, he made it okay. And he still said yes. And in that moment, I thought it was going to work. I knew it was going to work. Now, just in case you're wondering, like, how, how that happens and how a spider ends up under a veil, we figured this one out. So later, so like, he would not open his hand uh, until later, like, we're in kind of the lobby area, and, and he, he goes to open it. So there's these things called press-on eyelashes, um, that sometimes, like, can fall off, apparently. Like, I don't know. I don't wear these things. And, like, everything in that wedding was big, even the eyelashes. And when it fell onto her cheek, it looked like a spider. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. He didn't know. It wasn't, like, press. Like, he, spider, swoop, right? And later's like, oh, eyelashes. Here, let's, can we put those back on? Is that how that works? Um, and, and there's this, there's this moment when you've said yes and then you find a spider behind the veil, and you have to have a reaction. So what's yours? Now, in, in churches, we practice saying yes to things. Uh, we, we say yes even if we don't know how the future is going to play out. When I officiate a wedding, I often turn to those in attendance, and I ask them to say that they promise to help that couple through the journey ahead, that they'll fight for that marriage more than they fight for the person that they've just known the longest, because marriage is too hard to adventure through alone. If you're around for baptisms on Easter this year, you'll notice we ask people into the waters of baptism, have you decided to follow Jesus? Now, when they say yes, I don't know if they've thought through all of the things that might mean for their career or for their relationships, the things that God might call them to or the things he might call them away from, but we say yes to helping them navigate those things together because we believe in a God that brings to life things that have died and a God who has a greater plan for us than we could ever imagine. And in the last few years of pastoring, I've started working vows and promises even into memorial services to, to ask those in attendance if they would promise to walk through this next season of life with a family, through the, the days and the weeks and the holidays and the years together to help them navigate the unknown. And I, I've, along the way, I mean, I, I love funerals. I mean, it's not that I love funerals. Like, they're so much better than weddings. And I said that wrong. I'm watching your reactions. Let me, let me try to say this a different way. So I do this sometimes. I'll say it wrong. Let me fix it. Uh, if we've been friends, you know that's the thing that I, that I do sometimes. Like, here's the thing about weddings. No one wants to remember the pastor. Like, that's not, that's not what, you're, what you're going for. At best, you don't mess up, right? There's no spiders behind the veil. Uh, you're... You don't want like your, your sermon to be too long because nobody came for that, right? Um, these are things pastors think through. Uh, you don't want to mix up names or pronouns because that's awkward. Those are not the memories you want to create. You want to get in, get out, smile for the camera, and fade away. Like there's no, there's no bride that when they were a little person, they dreamt of their wedding and like knew who the pastor was going to be. Like that, that's not like no one practices like signing a document and they've also written like, and the pastor on it. Like that's not how that works. Uh, and yet we're there. And weddings are, are beautiful, but they're terribly stressful. And I, I, think that's, I think that's what I meant to say. 
Now, funerals, on the other hand, they create an actual moment for someone to pastor. When you're a pastor, you become a, a shepherd for those in mourning. You're able to, to walk them through the valley because you know it, because you've walked others through it before. Families need a word of hope, so your message matters on that day. When the one uncle grabs the microphone and starts telling the story and everyone in the room knows where that one goes and they're like, it's really funny, but can you tell that at a funeral? Like there's this moment where as a pastor, you get to give them permission to laugh and remind them that there will be a world in which they get to laugh again. Funerals can be terribly sad, but they can be beautifully meaningful. That's what I meant to say. When we say yes to something, we're saying yes to the future, not to the present. In our vows, we're asked to consider making promises to the unknown, to decide that even if the 24th time fails, we will try again. To stay calm even when there's a spider behind the veil. When you say yes, you're leaning into a potential reality that requires you to trust that there's something beautiful on the other side of hard things. And when the early church said yes to following Jesus, they were saying yes to a radical new way of loving others. When Paul wrote his letter to the church in Corinth, it wasn't a passage that had been used at a bunch of weddings before. Uh, these words were written for couples to consider uh, and for pastors to rush through on their way towards the kissing of the bride. Instead, Paul is writing to the church and even to the church today to let us know what saying yes to Jesus means that we begin living into. It's a supernatural kind of love. It's one that we can only live into through the work of God's spirit in our lives. Paul writes about love as though it requires action. Consider what he writes. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Love rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Not only is love an action, but it's something that you, if you are a Christ follower, that you've promised to live into. It's not something you'll ever be perfect in, in doing this side of heaven, but it's something that you've promised to live it out, even if it takes 38 tries to figure out how you're supposed to love that person who's hard to love. Could you imagine a world in which we have the same tenacity as the WD-40 guy to try to love others without the option of giving up? Imagine the spiders beyond, beyond the veil of promising to love others, even deciding to love that person who did the thing to you that happened a while ago, but it's so hard to find forgiveness for. What would it take for you to put yourself into what Paul writes about love? What would it look like for you to put yourself in that place to ask, am I showing Jesus' love to others? How many times will it take for you to be able to say, I am patient, I am kind, I do not envy, I do not boast, I am not proud, I do not dishonor others, I am not easily angered, I keep no record of wrongs, I do not delight in evil, I rejoice with the truth, I always protect, I always trust, I always hope, I always persevere. Could you imagine a church full of people who have committed to that kind of a yes? That was the early church, and that's the kind of church we want to be. If you're visiting us today, or if you're new at figuring out how to do church with us, that's what we're trying to say yes to. We're not going to be perfect at it. 
It's going to take a lot of tries before we even get close. There are going to be spiders in the way. But here's why investing in this kind of love is worth the work. Paul says it's the only thing that won't fade away. On the other side of this life, the other investments you've made won't make the jump. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth reminds us that love is the only thing that perseveres. It's like this. In the mid-19th century, uh, our country went through a civil war. It saw the states divided between uh, the Northern Union and the Southern Confederacy. As both sides fought to establish or retain their legitimacy, they had their own officials, their own constitutions, their own forms of currency. And imagine what happened to those who had moved all of their investments into Confederate dollars when the war ended and that currency didn't persevere. Paul tells us that investing in anything other than love is an investment that will not persevere. Your college degree or your child's college degree, it's not something that gets to go up on a wall in the halls of heaven. That's not how that one works. There will be no uh, eternal boasting of, of those that you cut out of your life or those who you guarded yourself from because of mistakes that they'd made or the ways they treated you. The only thing that lasts is love. Now, the small group that Christine and I are, are in, uh, we're figuring out uh, what it means to, to live into loving others right now through a series of discussions that, that we're in the midst of. Like a lot of small groups in our church, we'll go through seasons where we'll study uh, sermon-based stuff together. We'll go to our small groups director and ask for DVD series to go through. Right now, we're a little off the beaten path, and we're doing a series that I'm actually in the middle of writing. Uh, like, I, I haven't done next week's yet. We're kind of in the middle of it. Uh, I heard my small group laugh. Like, they're not surprised, though. Like, it's 100%. Like, we're, we're just kind of winging it together on this one. And I probably could have come up with a better title if I was trying to, like, market it outside of my group of friends. Um, but here, I'm going to put it up on the screen for you just so you can see the title of the series we're in. It's called Talking About What Other Religions Believe Without Sounding Like Jerks. <laughs> um, because as, as, a group, uh, as a group of parents, like, we want to raise our kids to be able to talk about what they believe in the context of what others believe. Uh, and so... We do a session and we talk about things together and then we take the next week and we talk with our kids about it. Because um, I want to lead those conversations in my kids' lives. Like I want to help them formulate what they believe in the context of what others believe. If love is the one thing that lasts, I want to raise kids who are loving. And if I want my kids to be Jesus followers, I want them to be able to articulate what they believe in when they talk with their friends without coming across like jerks. So we have some housekeeping rules that, that we go over as a group each time we gather and we talk about those same rules with our kids each time that we, we get together and we, we chat. Here's, here's some of those rules. We, we believe that the most important talks don't happen in one sitting. Like the most important things are things you talk about over and over again. If today's the only time you've ever heard about like, oh, I should love people, it's probably not gonna stick. It's probably like, oh, and then you're gonna forget it because the most important things we talk about over and over we also remind ourselves that not all people believe all things about any one thing. So when we talk about what a group of people believe about the divine, like we also understand that some of that language is limiting. It'd be like saying all Christians believe in infant baptism. It's like, well, some of them, some of them not. Like, why did you bring that one up? Exactly, right? And, and when we talk about what other people believe, we're reminded that not all people believe all things about any one thing. We remind ourselves that John 3.17 is just as important as John 3.16. Now, you might know John 3.16 if you've been around church at all. Like it's, it's an easy one to start remembering, right? Like, uh, when, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Like we, we know that one. We put it up like at you know, ball games and stuff. 
John 3.17, though, is really important, gang. It's this. It's that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to rescue it. Like, and those are next to each other for a reason. And when we have conversations with people, it's not to condemn them. It's to lead them to their rescuer. We also, this is an important thing, sometimes more for me than anybody else in the room, but believing you're right doesn't mean you get to be a jerk. Like, that's not how that one works. Uh, after the last service, somebody's like, you said jerk a lot in that sermon. Like, can you say that at church? At our church, you can. Welcome to real life, friends. Because uh, here's the thing. Like, we, we want to be people that love others well. And we want to be able to talk with our kids about what they believe. And we believe it's our job to, to listen and to ask, and we only fix things when it's the request. There was a season of evangelical Christianity when we thought we could argue people into heaven. And I'm not saying that apologetics are bad or the way that the church did ministry in previous decades missed the mark. What I am saying is that Christians in the early church were known more for their love than for being jerks. And I want to raise kids who live out that kind of faith. In the third century, there was a plague that swept through a region that Christianity was taking root in. And as that plague spread, as family members, members became sick, people started putting them out on the street just to protect those who were not sick. Christians became known as the people who not only would keep their own sick family members in their home, but they began rescuing others from the streets. Could you imagine? I want to have that kind of faith. I want to be that kind of church I want to be the kind of people who love others enough to do life alongside them in their messiness. I want to say yes, even when there are spiders behind the veil. Now, it's not to say that you have to live in the midst of a plague in order to, to show others love. In fact, you get to decide today what it means for you to take a step toward yes in loving others. There are people in your life who are easy to love. Let's, let's start there. Uh, take a moment. I want you to think of a person uh, who's easy for you to love and commit to doing one thing this week to show them that you love them. The only way we get better at things is through practice. So, so I want us to start with an easy one. If you can't show love to the people who are easy to love, it's going to be a lot harder to show love to those who take a little bit more work. And we all have people in our lives who, who take more work to show love to. Like, that's just the nature of, of humanity. And I'm not suggesting today that you have to figure out how you show all of them that you love them. Like, that would be exhausting. Instead, I want you to think of one person in your life who's hard to love and commit to doing one thing this week to show them that they are loved. Now, thinking of the person is going to be easier than thinking of the thing you're going to do, so you don't have to worry about that one yet. But I want you to, to let someone know that you're going to try that this week so they can ask you later this week, how did that go? And it gives you time to come up with the how. You're not going to be perfect at this. But figuring this one out is more important than figuring out how to create WD-40. Squeaky hinges are annoying, but investing in loving others is one thing that's going to last. So try something this week. If it doesn't work, try again next week. And there's a third group of people in our lives, and they're often the forgotten ones. It's the customers in the store that you've worked with so much that you've kind of forgotten that they need to be shown love too. It's the coworkers who've just kind of become white noise and they're there in your nine to five, but you forget that your job is to show them love as well. It's that person standing next to the road who's humbled themselves enough to ask for help from strangers that we dart our eyes from. And I want you to think through what's one thing you could do this week to show those who are forgotten, those who are on the margins, that they are loved and they are cared for. Do you know that in all of Jesus's recorded teachings, he only gave his followers one new commandment? You'll often read Jesus's interpretations of, of teachings or, or re 
reorientation of Old Testament scriptures. He'll say, you've heard it said, but I say this. It's a common phrasing that Jesus uses when he teaches. It's like if you taught your kid how to play baseball, and you went away on a trip, and you came back, and they were playing cricket. Like, oh, kind of? Like, there's a ball, but that is not how we pitch it, right? And there are bases, but, like, there's four of them, and you go around. And if you're on the Dodgers, you go around a lot of times, right? Because they're scoring a lot of points right now, which is fantastic. Um, or, but, like, and there's a bat, but it does not look like that, right? Like, oh, close, kind of, but not really. That's often what Jesus was doing in his teachings and looking what had already been said before him and reorienting it. And yet, in one place, Jesus gives a new commandment, just one, in all of his teachings, and it's this. In John chapter 13, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And can I tell you my favorite part of this whole thing, even though it's the most heartbreaking? He gives this command on the night that he's betrayed. The night that everyone would leave his side. The Last Supper, the the beginning of the end of his life. It's in the midst of betrayal that Jesus offers his final commandment, love others the way I'm about to love you. Love others when they are about to betray you. Love others. How beautiful is it that Jesus loves you and I? He knows we won't be able to live up to this new commandment on the first try. He knows we won't be able to do it on the 21st try. He knows how many times we're going to fail at loving others. And in the midst of our betrayal, he loves you. And he loves me. And he calls us to have that kind of love for others. So here's the decision we get to make today. Will you say yes to loving like Jesus? If you believe that love is the one thing that lasts, will you say yes to loving like Jesus? If you believe that promises are hard and you won't get this right on the first try, do you still say yes to loving like Jesus? What if it takes 34 tries? What if it takes 70 tries? Will you still say yes? As we move into a new building and into a new neighborhood, knowing there will be spiders behind the veil and knowing it's going to be messy sometimes, will you say yes to loving our new neighbors like Jesus? And here's the good news. Jesus said yes to you on the cross, and he will continue to say yes to you even if you drop the ball on this one. We get to share that kind of love with others. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you that you loved us, that you loved us enough to go to a cross for us. We ask that you would move in our lives in such a way that we might love others as you loved us. God, there are some of us who, who don't even know how to start, and I pray that your spirit would give us an idea, that you'd spark something in us that we would know what you're calling us to do next. God, help us say yes in the midst of messiness. Help us say yes, even if we don't know what it's gonna look like. We wanna be people who've said yes to you. Help us live into that yes. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.